Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Rouge Rugby Podcast. I'm Sue Hardy, joined, as always, by Derek Brissett. And this week, we have two special guests. They are the head coach and the team manager of the Coastal Cup champions, the Vancouver Wave, Christian Esterhuizen and Paddy Watson. Thank you both for joining us tonight. Thanks, Thanks for so having much. us. Okay, so we always start these interviews with the similar questions and it's always about how you got involved in rugby because especially in Canada there's a lot of different paths you can go down so what got you started in rugby specifically how do you want to go sure uh so my father is from Dublin and uh, played rugby growing up and immigrated to Canada. And when I was very young, he played for the Burlington Centaurs in Ontario. So some of my early memories are being around the rugby club there. And then we moved to Calgary and I decided I really wanted to play rugby and kind of looked into it and got my dad to sign me up for juniors at the Calgary Irish and played there. Uh, I also was involved with the starting of a rugby program at my high school. Uh, we had a principal with Welsh background come in and he wanted to get rugby back going at the school. It hadn't been uh, one, of the, one of the parts of the sports program for a good, I think, 20, 30 years. And we ended up winning a Division II city championship in our second year, having the program back up and going, which is a great memory for me. And then I ended up coming out to the coast to uh, go to UBC. I'm playing four years at UBC and then moved on to playing uh, for the Ravens, UBC Old Boys out here. And that's how I ended up involved with rugby in Vancouver and in BC. And I think like a, a lot of Canadians, it starts with having a, a dad or a mom and someone from a more traditional rugby playing country like Ireland or like South Africa or wherever it is. Uh, and I just developed a lot of passion for the sport that way. I remember uh, going to my first international at Lansdowne Road in Dublin, but also going to internationals in Alberta uh, at Ellerslie Rugby Park in Edmonton and uh, the CRU in Calgary. So quite different uh, environments for my two citizenships in terms of what international rugby looked like, uh, but really cool to see international rugby in different ways uh, around the world. I'm kind of curious about something that you did say there, because um, it sounds like, like yourself, my, the first, well, maybe it sounded like you played rugby a little bit before when the, uh, um, playing uh, at a bit of a younger age than high school. But when I got introduced to rugby, it was also my high school's like first ever year learning rugby or having a rugby team, um, which ultimately meant that it was about 30 kids that had never even seen a rugby ball before trying to figure out how to play it in like three months or whatever, however long the run up was. I'm just curious, kind of like, I guess, like, what was that, I guess, experience like for you kind of just like playing on like a team that literally has never existed before as, you know, in high school and then maybe 
if you actually had played before, it's like, was there a lot of trying to, because on my, what in my high school, none of us played ever. So I was just curious, like, what, what did you have to like, did the other kids on the team kind of have to like rely on say maybe players like yourself to kind of explain what was going on or like, how was that experience kind of diving into Canadian high school rugby with, you know, not necessarily a lot of people know, know what it is before high school. Well, one connection I can make to this year with the Coastal Cup, uh, SE and I started the year trying to build our front row up a bit. And I remember uh, in high school, you just kind of look around at the kids that, <laughs> oh, you, you, you might be a prop. Why don't you, why don't you come out? So part of it is re- recruiting guys that you think might have a future in the sport or might just enjoy it. Uh, and then in terms of the playing, yeah, I had experience. I'd been playing since I was 11. Uh, so I was able to kind of talk a lot on the field and I'd usually end up hoarse by the end of the game. And I played a lot of my rugby career at 10 and 15. So it was good training for talking a lot and communicating a lot on the field. And I found in Alberta in high school at that time anyway, uh, if you knew the game a little bit, there were things like quick tap penalties where uh, you might have 28 or 29 other guys on the field don't know that you can just quick tap it and, and go and you're able to exploit that. Yeah, that was kind of our play too. We had like one guy that like ran track and then just played rugby for fun and it would just be like quick tap, throw it to him and then hopefully nobody's paying attention by that point. He scored a lot of tries doing that. Um, yeah, I hit a few drop goals during high school as well, which I think is fairly rare in high school rugby in Canada at least. And uh, you kind of get quizzical looks from the other side. Like, oh, you can just... Uh, do that at any point in time like yep that'll be three <laughs> points if you can put it over yeah knowing the rules is a pretty key part of the game uh christian uh, how, how about yourself how did you uh you get involved in rugby i imagine it's a uh, slightly different than uh, us who have grown up in canada yeah it's not your typical canadian story um yeah i think mine is a maybe a typical south african story i literally grew up with it um my dad was a, a good rugby player and he carried on being involved, whether he was a coach or on the admin side or being a referee. He was always involved in rugby. He's still till today, he's, um, whatever, 76 years old, and he's still, like, he got inducted into the Free State Referees Hall of Fame or something. He's still involved um, the other day. So, um, yeah, I just, I guess, went with him wherever there was rugby. Um, I grew up in in Bloemfontein. It's, it's quite a big sport in, in, in that city in South Africa, the... Well, it's obviously arguably that the best rugby school in the world um, is in Bloemfontein, and I attended that school. So it's quite a serious thing, you know, from the age of um, 19 years old till you in, in grade 12. It's quite a serious thing, your rugby. Um, you know, and then I continued playing for, for the University of Free State, and then, you know, I went to Cape Town and I started playing there. And then after my playing career in Cape Town, I started to coach rugby. For them, and I literally coached, I think, every side at the University of Cape Town. I worked my way up. Uh, my last job there was the director of rugby. Um, you know, and then the decision came to immigrate, and it was great to use rugby and both contacts to, to get me to Canada and then give me the opportunity over here. So, uh, yeah, when I arrived here, um, somebody from the Miro Lomas in, in Kitsilano, you know, got to hear that, that I would like to come along. And, um, you know, they 
they offered me the head coach job over there. And from there on, you know, the, the wave competition was something that was spoken about and I got offered the, the head coach job of the wave. So that's my entry into Canada, you know, um, from, from South Africa. Yeah. I just want to say I went to Queenie and Calgary so that my school is in the same conversation <laughs> as the best rugby school in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so um, both of you have mentioned that you've had playing careers and then going into coaching careers and both have mentioned um, how your uh, fathers have had an impact on your rugby journey. Is there anyone in both your time as playing and becoming coaches or team managers in Paddy's case that um, you look to for like inspiration or has really helped you along your journey? I, I think um, there's various people. There's always a mentor um, that you look up to. Um, look, I mentioned my dad, obviously he's, he's the number one, but I think a guy like Alan Zonda, who was well, his coach all over the world, he was Saracen's coach and his last job was the um, director of rugby at the Blue Bulls in South Africa. He's a guy I've been staying close to the last five or six years. Um, you know, there's a guy like John Dobson at the Stormers. So, so yeah, I, I stayed connected with, with those kind of coaches. Um, a, a very inspirational coach to me was um, Alan Solomons. Um, I played a little bit for him and learned so much from him. So, um, yeah, I, I guess it's just keeping connected with you know, with um, high profile coaches um, and, and they become mentors and, and kind of friends to you. Yeah. Uh, how about yourself, Patty? Any, uh, anybody that kind of helped guide the, uh, the path through rugby throughout the years? I guess the names that kind of stick out first when I think of that are my coaches at UBC. So I, I got to play under Spencer McTavish, who's a legend of Canadian rugby and Rod Holloway. And I went through some some really tough practices under those two, but uh, they were always there for the players and kind of inspiring. And you still see them around. I got to have a beer with Spence after the opening game of the Coastal Cup uh, when we played against UBC. Um, so those are the two names that stick out to me. Okay, now. As you're both involved in the Vancouver Wave, we're going to eliminate any Wave players from this question. But um, is there anyone, either a current player or former player, that you are or were always excited to see step out on the pitch and represent their team or their country? Is that um, in, in Canada? Well, in th throughout. So any, any country, any team, but anyone that... When you sat down and you saw them on TV, you're like, I'm really happy this guy's playing today. Yeah, I think um, I grew up with a guy called uh, CJ van der Linde. He was my friend growing up and he ended up playing 80s matches for the Springboks, um, mainly at tight end. But um, growing up, I, I saw the guy train and I saw how hard he worked. And I mean, the guys of front row forward is over... 100 kgs, 120 kgs, and he can run 100 meters um, as fast as the backs. And, and that didn't come um, automatically, he worked for it. So, you know, seeing how we, how we trained and how we played professional rugby, I always waited for him to get the ball into some open space. It didn't happen a lot, but the one or two times it happened as a tight end, I really got excited and, and enjoy seeing him <laughs> with the ball in hand. For me, I had the chance to play with and 
generally sit lower on the depth chart at UBC with Harry Jones and getting to see him up close a lot. It was always exciting. I remember some incredible performances he had against Cal and against Ubik and uh, just a fantastic player to see in person. And then also played a little bit with uh, Connor Trainer at the Ravens here in Vancouver. And it was the same. You could just see the power and the skill that he had when he, he's playing in the BC Premier League. And I've gotten the chance to see those two play for Canada as well live. And I think they're both just electric, very good players. And it's kind of sad that that generation uh, is all kind of retiring from sevens and from Canadian duty. In terms of like a hero growing up, uh, watching Ireland and uh, getting to see Brian O'Driscoll a lot. He was just an incredible, incredible player and uh, someone that I looked up to and I think is a good role model. Yeah, all uh, all phenomenal names uh, rattled off there. Um, I'm going to go back to SC just for a quick question before we kind of dive into the uh, 2021 Coastal Cup campaign. And just, I know like, so you were coaching at, uh, University of Cape Town in South Africa um, prior to um, immigrating to Canada. And I know as part of that, you got to play against like UBC in um, the uh, World University Rugby Invitational. And I'm just kind of in general kind of wondering before moving to Canada, what was your like interpretation or how did you view Canadian rugby as someone growing up in South Africa? I was a bit worried to be honest. <laughs> After we played UBC, but uh, I, I think it was just a very good day for us and not, not the best day for UBC. And as I progressed and watch, watching UBC's progress throughout the tournament, and um, I could see um, they're quite a competitive team. I was happy to see how well they were coached and um, that they got structure. And, and that made me feel like, you know, the, the teams are being coached quite well over here. Um, I think the main difference between... Um, maybe a standard South African and a Canadian rugby player is just that the tempo and, and the ability to create intensity is maybe something that's part of the culture or they are born with. I'm not too sure where it comes from, but, but I feel like in terms of technical coaching, there's no difference. It's maybe just the player has, has got a little bit more rugby IQ and, and then can create tempo and intensity. Yeah. Perfect. And so we'll get into like the Coastal Cup now. And I mean, we've we've talked about it uh, on our podcast um, a little bit as the the season kind of went on and from the initial announcement that, you know, the Coastal Cup was going to happen. But we we do have like a lot of listener, a decent number of listeners, a surprisingly high number of listeners, actually, when I was looking at it, that aren't from Canada, or at least they're not listening to things on a device from Canada. And I was just kind of wondering if it's like, before we really get into it, can we just get your guys kind of description and explanation on what the Coastal Cup is and how it became, how it came about and why um, the people involved in rugby in British Columbia think it's going to be a great thing moving forward? Yeah, I think a big part of the mission statement of the Coastal Cup is bridging the gap between BC Premier League or fairly high level amateur rugby that happens in Canada and the MLR and the Canadian national team rugby Canada. So it's an opportunity for players to uh, 
put themselves up for a higher level competition, have an opportunity for visibility. Maybe that leads to an MLR contract. Maybe that leads to Rugby Canada identifying them or seeing them as something different than they thought of them before. Uh, gives a chance for a team like we fielded with the Vancouver Wave uh, to have more imports on the field because there are import restrictions for the BC Premier League. So that can lead to uh, a little bit of a stronger side, which is stronger competition for our Canadian homegrown guys and also player, players that might be eligible for Canada at some point in time. Uh, so I think a, a big part is visibility and the chance to have something that's a little bit in between professional rugby or representing the country and just going out every Saturday here in BC to play for your club. Uh, I'm someone that was never in the conversation to be picked by Rugby Canada. Uh, and I know that having played in the BC Premier League, uh, some weekends you'll have a couple Canadian players or guys that have played uh, pro in Europe or in the Southern Hemisphere. And you also have players that really are just looking to be a bit more social with their rugby, maybe play at a decent level. But it's nice to have a competition where uh, you're really gathering all the players that want to compete at a higher level and might have aspirations beyond what those more social players have. And like, we'll kind of get into the team a little bit, but like, how do you guys feel like the season went in, like, just from, like you said, the idea of just giving players a chance to kind of maybe play at a high level a little bit more regularly, possibly bridge that gap between club rugby and major league, major league rugby. And also, I mean, like coastal cup has like a website up. You guys are obviously doing a lot of things on like social media and trying to build up the brand. And so just kind of from that, like sort of off field perspective, like how did, the first season go any like challenges or you know kind of getting the coastal cup kind of off the ground and just in general what was it like being involved in the first year of a competition i think there were a lot of challenges and some were probably more visible and others maybe less so uh one thing i think you two probably picked up on was streaming. Some weeks it looked pretty good and other weeks it was an impossibility, whether that was weather or just the infrastructure where the games were being played. Um, we had a lot of issues with fields this year because of the insane amount of rain we got out here and some other issues related to that. So there were some games moved around. Uh, SE and I spent a lot of time on the phone and emailing people through situations like that. Um, but I think despite those challenges, I think the groundwork was done to build a really good competition where uh, we are going to be able to hopefully fulfill those ideas that I talked about before and platform. And I think the most difficult year is always going to be the first year. And we were a lot of good games some really close scores uh, and even the teams at the lower end of the table really build and I think setting themselves for the other seasons that they have coming up or in terms of UBC and UVic going to the uh, University Rugby Championships where UBC won so we were 
fortunate to beat them in the first game of the year, but I think they still used the Coastal Cup to prepare them uh, and and go and win that competition. So you've talked about um, preparing for the tournament and the tournament itself. Um, obviously, it feels that it's been a great success for rugby in BC. One of the things that both of you would like to see of the Coastal Cup for both next year and in the long term? Yeah, um, I think the answer is proof in the pudding almost. Like the, the quality of rugby is definitely a step up, you know, from, from a, your standard, you know, BC rugby league match. And it definitely bridged or breached that you referred to be, between the MLR and club rugby. I think the biggest change I would like to see is, is just you know, a move away from, there's a lot of people that obviously weren't involved in the initial discussions around the Coastal Cup. Um, and they didn't, you know, completely bought into the concept of this competition. So, you know, I would really love like just a little bit more buy-in from, from everybody else. Start seeing like, you know, if you if you you have a couple of players representing a team like the Wave, opportunity to, to play with the better players against better players. And when they return back to the clubs, you know, they're a little bit uh, sharper maybe than, than they were before. So sure, that's a big thing I want to see. Maybe, you know, the scheduling can, can help a bit with that. Play the start the competition slightly earlier, a couple of weeks earlier, so we don't interfere too much with the, with the um, club season. But, I th- you know, I think those are the things Paddy referred to. You know, that's, you know, the first step happened this year and a lot of things need to happen for year two um, if this thing wants to grow yeah, or is going to grow. So... Obviously, the Vancouver Wave, you guys are the inaugural Coastal Cup champions. Uh, you went 6-0 and throughout the tournament. Um, so uh, I'm assuming from a coaching perspective, there can't be too much to complain about there. But um, I just... Oh, you don't know, Essie. Okay, well, all right. First question. What was there to complain about during a perfect <laughs> 6-0 and season? Oh, thanks, Patty. Throwing me under the bus here. <laughs> um, no, look... Um, I think I referred to that the challenge was just to to get the clubs to buy in and actually giving their best players. I, I don't feel like um, the wave was a true representation of of the open clubs and, and what they can offer to them. And I guess as that made us think as a coaching setup a little bit harder, and we had to be a little bit more creative in terms of how we wanted to play. Um, for me, it was clear we had like a lot of strengths in a few areas, and we were fairly weak in a few areas and we had to play around that and we had to adapt our our game plan to to that kind of level you know so I I think what what gave us the edge was we we really focused on we coached the stuff that the players could do we focused on that and and really did that well Uh, and then you know found a few few gaps in the opposition um, the way they play to to try and exploit that so it was really down to simple and effective um, coaching philosophy, you know, with with the players that we've got. Who are some of the wave players that really impressed you as the uh, the season kind of went on? Obviously, you had Mike Maloney who uh, led the league in in uh, scoring. So I mean, that's obviously you know a name that kind of sticks out immediately. Just kind of looking at the stats, but like, who are some of the uh, the wave players that got you like you know either like really excited to watch or you're kind of really proud of the way that they uh, you know that they developed as the season went on? Yeah, yeah. Um... Like, I think our captain, Neil Courtney, um, he was a tight prop. I mean, that guy was a rock for us. The way he led the players, the way he 
kept the guys loyal to, you know, to the cause. You know, our two centers, I thought, were, were um, a little bit better than, than the rest, Colby Mason and Isaac Winter. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Mike Maloney, phenomenal kick of a rugby ball. I don't think in my coaching career I've coached somebody that can kick a ball better than him and just seem to have time and scan the space and hit it, whether it's a banana kick or up and under or whatever, he just hits the spot. So, uh, I mean, yeah, and, and the way we played, I mean, he kicked a lot of things for us. It was um, a bit of a different approach to, to the other teams, but he came in as a, as a very effective weapon. So, uh, Patty, I noticed um, as on your shirt there, you have the uh, Mariloma rugby logo kind of, uh, you know, recolored in blue and upside down. So, uh, as you guys honored uh, your teammate, uh, Dan Wigley, um, who passed away, unfortunately, before the season starts. Can you just kind of talk about um, the tribute that you had, which is obviously, you know, on the shirt there, your locks only wore number 25 instead of the traditional five during this season as well. Um, can you just kind of talk about, you know, what um, the, the tributes that you guys did? And I'm assuming, you know, that kind of provided a little bit of the the inspiration behind, oh, you know, fueling the uh, championship season as well. Yeah, before the last game, uh, before we beat the Pride, I put together a video that kind of told the story uh, of the season including Dan's tragic passing. And then we had some messages from for the players uh, and it ended uh, with one of Dan's friends, Steph sharing a message to the team and was really powerful. And it was kind of our inspiration through the season was uh, to honor Dan. So like you said, we had the inverted Marilomas logo on our sleeve with the W for wigs. And we had his number five jersey on the sideline or in the in goal and hanging in the locker room with us throughout the whole year. Uh, and then kind of strange when you saw our, our lineup, our match day 23, and would see one, two, three, four, 25. Um, but that was another way to honor him just to have that five with us, but, but not on the field. Uh, so it was pretty, pretty big challenge for us dealing with that uh, right before the season kicked off. But uh, a lot of really powerful moments and uh, guys supporting each other and uh, making sure that we made the season count. Uh, Christian, do you uh, do you have anything to add to the uh, you know the tributes and stuff that you guys did for Dan? And I know obviously uh, he plays for the club that you coach. So um, I'm assuming, uh, how, like, can you just maybe talk to like the the impact that Dan had on his teammates and you know the coaching staff and friends and family and all the people around him? Yeah, I mean, I had the privilege to coach Dan for about four months of my life, and um, you know he was in the leadership group for for both the Lomas and and the Wave. You know, by vote, a very popular guy in the team. And uh, you know, when 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 the tragic incident happened, and obviously, the, me being close to the Lomas, I saw how the whole rugby community, how strong it is, and how special it is, and how they got together and supported each other. Um, it it was incredible. It was honestly something um, I've never experienced in in that kind of way. Like. Um, you know, some people deal with things differently and, and, and how the guys that really struggled got support from, from the others, um, you know, by a call or even a walk, uh, you know, um, 
and then professional support. So, so that was special to see um, how it brought everybody together. And obviously, you know, Dan um, said to me before, when I first actually my first one on one with him, you know, he said he's, he's never won a trophy in rugby. And uh, and when the wave opportunity came to it, he said, let's go and win this. So, you know, it was it was a good motivation for us to try and go and win this thing for Dan. And um, luckily it, it worked out well. But yeah, I mean, he was he was missed and he will continue to miss the, the big man. There's a lot of great talent for rugby out in BC, both playing for the wave and against the wave in the Coastal Cup. Um, we've already had the announcement of some players, um, especially in the Pacific Pride, that have been signed to MLR teams. Are there any other players that you can see playing in the MLR or even overseas in the next few years? They are, are two hookers, uh, Matias Suez and Pete Inglesby. Uh, they're both a little bit younger than kind of our average across across the squad. And uh, Matias had fantastic fitness and kind of was a lead by example guy for us in terms of that. And Pete, having played for the Canada under 20s, and he's going to be playing for the Pride in the future here. So, yeah, like I said, because of because of the age profile, those are two that I would point out. Essie. Yeah, I think it's a, you know, Paddy has mentioned the age, and um, I believe for the 2027 World Cup, and with this Canada selects team, we had to consider that, you know, so kind of the, the first thoughts were to to limit the age to players 25 and, and younger. Um, but as the selection process started to happen, we started to open it up to, to a few players you know, over the age of 25, because, you know, I mean, that Rugby World Cup is six years away. You know, there's nothing wrong with a, a four-year-old season, um, second rower, you know, um, that can make it. So there's a lot of guys that just got their P and they're one year away from citizenship. So it's hard for me to tell you exactly when they will get those papers. But, but I think, you know, spread over the entire Coastal Cup, there, there's quite a lot of players that's, you know, that will be eligible for Canada quite soon. Um, and I think, you know, that can help the, the cause in, in Canada. And, and in terms of the MLR, um, you know, I, I just think there's, you know, if some players want that and they don't have full-time jobs, you know, they, they will get rewarded with contracts. You know, a, a guy like, I don't know, um, you know, I mentioned Neil Courtney, the, the guy's an engineer. You know, he certainly is good enough to, to play at that level, but whether he wants it, that's a different question. So I think there's a lot of those cases. So speaking of looking ahead to the 2027 World Cup, it's, um, how do I put this nicely? It's not been the best year for Rugby Canada, especially with the men's 15 um, structure. Now, I know neither of you are involved in it, but even from a fan perspective, what would you like to see change so that when it comes to 2027, Canada it definitely qualifies for it. Yeah, I, I think on a like I, I think what rugby what I would like to see is like, you know, they're buying into a. I think this will take 12 years maybe to to fix and you know be more deliberate with your recruitment. Um, be patient with players. Go and recruit certain positions every year. You know, from a from a tier one nation and spent the money and the investment on this player 
I don't know what the world rugby rule is now, three years or five years. You know, you bring an 18-year-old over, by the time he's 23, he can play test rugby. You know, and, and that's young for test rugby in any case. So, you know, maybe that we don't want to become a Japan where you just, you know, a bunch of um, exports. You want to maintain majority, I guess, of the team to be Canadian. But as I said earlier, I feel like if you bring a few of the tier one players over, they, they raise the intensity and tempo automatically. And if you have a few, a few key players um, in key positions, um, and you build with them and you start to create over a 12 year period, like a conveyor belt of, of these players. I think there's no doubt. I mean, that Canada will qualify the, you know, my short time here, I've coached, at, uh, I've got a, in, I'm involved in a coaching academy. So there's school boys and you know, I coach up to this um, Canada selects team now. So I've seen the spectrum. There's enough athletes in this country. I mean, yeah. it, the players are there. It's a bit of rugby IQ that lacks. And, and I think, especially going into senior rugby, um, when we see more players from, from the UK and Southern Hemisphere just arrive in Vancouver to play rugby, I think, um, you know, I did a fun exercise one night with, with our team and about half the team were born outside of Canada. Um, you know, and with my club as well, there's a lot of UK players. So the standard of club rugby is not bad because you know, all these influences are lifting the, the standard um, to be acceptable. So, you know, you build on that with a good recruitment program, Canada has to be in the World Cup, in my view. I, uh, I spent four years living in Tokyo and actually spent some time uh, teaching over there prior to that. So I watched Japan kind of rise into what they are in world rugby now. So without getting too detailed or anything, I, I'd like to see uh, Canada try and find some continuity and, and build the player base more so that uh, they can kind of st start the upward path that Japan's been on for quite a while now and reverse the downward path since Canada and Japan tied at the World Cup in 2011. And it's kind of been completely different situations since then. And having played rugby in Japan, I I don't think there's a big difference in the amateur rugby. I think it's actually uh, probably better somewhere like BC than it is what you see mostly in Japan. But there is a lot of a lot of money and quite a bit of structure, and uh, they have been able to find some continuity with the national team structure. Uh, not changing coaches too much and finding some key players to build off of. So just as a, as a fan wanting Canada to do well, that's what I would like to see. Yeah. I feel like uh, that's kind of what we would all like to see at a, at a certain point here. Um, you did Patty, Patty too. Like before we um, kind of started uh, recording, you kind of, we mentioned that uh, like your job as the, uh, the team manager for the Vancouver wave. And you kind of meant kind of chuckled and said that at the, uh, you know, in the coastal cup, that that means a lot of different things. So during the, uh, the first year of the, of the coastal cup of first year of the, uh, the wave in the coastal cup, it's like, what did that job as a team manager kind of entail as the season went on? Well, for us with the Vancouver wave, we were a bit of a nomad team because we didn't have one home uh, we have technically 
Brockton Oval as the, the home field for the Vancouver Rugby Union, but we didn't play any games or, or train there. We we trained at the Capilanos, uh, we trained in Marilomas, we had Empire Field here, a turf field in Vancouver. So moving around a lot and making sure we were still organized and that everyone had what they needed to succeed. Uh, that was an important thing. And then everything, sort of things we've mentioned already, like social media. Uh, I think I got my my Instagram credentials boosted quite a bit by this competition. <laughs> uh, making sure that games actually got off because with with the weather and with other things getting in the way, uh, one thing that I'm looking forward to in future years of the competition is some of the double headers or even triple header days that we had planned uh, that unfortunately didn't come to fruition the way, at least the way we imagined this year because of complications. Uh, and then things like trying to make sure there's good streams, uh, having actual talk about who's on the field is something that we're going to want to continue to improve. Um, some teams did a good job with that, like Van East had a pretty good setup uh, when it wasn't completely underwater to stream the games this season. We were new to that, the Tide uh, on the island. I know they were kind of new to it and had some complications. Um, the game, the UBC versus Pacific Pride game in Port Alberni obviously had some complications being at a, a different venue and some funny camera work and things. So there's there's a lot that needs to be organized. And I feel like uh, I kind of dealt with everything, every wrench that could be thrown into the works possible uh, this year and still came out with an enjoyable experience. And that was thanks to the coaching staff and players who made it worthwhile making sure we finished with. So one thing that comes up a lot of time for Canadian players is that they need to have like the pathways of how they progress through their rugby journey, whether that's be to um, playing an MLR or team. So let's say there was a eight-year-old kid who saw the uh, Pacific Pride um, fall to the Vancouver wave, saw the wave lift the Coastal Cup and decides, right, I want to become a rugby player and I want to play for the Vancouver wave. What is the pathway for um, so someone that would either be of middle school or high school age going from playing rugby either in BC or maybe even out of BC um, to playing for uh, the Vancouver Wave? Well, I've done some coaching here um, in schools in Vancouver and it's it's a bit of a battle right now, but trying to keep rugby strong in schools here is important. So making sure that that eight-year-old goes to a high school where they're going to be able to play rugby and get some good coaching. Uh, as he mentioned, he's involved in an academy here. Uh, I've done some coaching with the UBC Rugby Academy, so going for those opportunities when possible. And then uh, for me, my path was playing rugby at UBC and uh, TWU's trying to build a program here and some good programs in Eastern Canada. So making sure that 
play and stick with it through university or if you don't go to university uh your club uh, you need those players to keep playing and that's how you're going to be able to sort of be in your prime and play your best rugby and maybe have a chance to play for a team like the Vancouver Wave or another team that uh, is even of higher aspirations. Yeah, we, we have with um, Van City Rugby Academy, we got permission from, from the schools to, to go and teach rugby in the, in the PE classes. So we started in September with that. So, you know, this is so important, like, children touch a rugby ball and they wouldn't have done it perhaps in the entire primary school or you call it your elementary school. Sorry, I'm speaking South African terms. Um, I'm British. I understand what you're talking about. <laughs> you, you do. So, you know, um, you know, in my example, I've got rugby loving boys. They're very young, but already, you know, they're seeing NFL on the TV and hockey on the TV. That's a sport they're already playing in the street. Um you, know, so you don't get exposed to rugby on, on television and around you and your culture. But I think, you know, we need to make these attempts to get it to the schools, get the children at a young age and, and just, you know, kind of be in their face with a rugby ball. Let them choose the um, the rugby ball over the basketball. Um, I believe that's a favorite ball. Children pick on the playground as a basketball. But, um, you know, yeah, as, as rugby coaches and as a rugby community, that's what we need to do get rugby balls into schools yeah i think that's a that's a great point it's like i said at the the start it's like i didn't don't even think i ever like you touched a rugby ball or even seen what one looked like until high school and even at that like that was like the first year that our school ever had a rugby team so it was like everybody was kind of brand new to it but you know once people kind of started playing everyone was kind of like man i wish i knew about this sport a little bit earlier right so you know i think if you like just even across canada like if we can get like more kids actually playing the game or watching the game. And I think like it could definitely help grow. And I think that's what I think is like a great thing about also what you, I know Patty, you mentioned like the streaming and actually being able to like see the game and kind of making rugby a lot easier to watch within Canada is obviously like, you know, MLR is kind of available on TSN and stuff too. So hopefully that kind of like brings some eyes and we're able to capture a few fans at a younger age. Yeah, I commented uh, one of the days this year during the competition was when uh, Canada played against Chile and the Canadian soccer team had a game and the Canadian game was behind a paywall or the Rugby Canada game was behind a paywall and uh, I paid to watch it but I, I said to some other coaches and rugby people around, how many kids do you think know that Canada played a rugby international today versus how many know that they played a soccer international and soccer is a hugely popper, popular sport all over the world, but it's still, uh, it still would be nice eyes, more young eyes watching that rugby game. Okay. Well, I think we're going to end the interview there. Christian and Paddy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, wish you all the best with the Vancouver wave and looking to see if you can do the double at the Coastal Cup in 2022. Thanks, guys. Thanks for your awesome work and your cool podcast. And Paddy introduced me to it earlier this year, so I'm enjoying it a lot. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Paddy, for setting it up. All right. Bye. Thanks again to Christian and Paddy from the Vancouver Wave for joining us. Great to have uh, two guys 
not on the pitch, but like behind the scenes and seeing how the Coastal Cup came about. What do you think, Derek? Uh, yeah, man. I mean, obviously they had a pretty great run this year um, in the Coastal Cup. You know, they're, uh, you know, undefeated, undisputed champions. And uh, it is it is interesting to hear like kind of both like, you know, Christian talking about his experience, you know, coming to Canada um, from South Africa and how, you know, his thoughts on kind of the Canadian and slash BC like, you know, rugby system. Um, also from Patty's point of view of just like, you know, what a lot of the behind the scenes um, you know what, what a lot of the work behind the scenes that was needed to take place to make uh, the Coastal Cup happen. And, you know, I, I just hope that going forward, the, um, you know, it's like people continue to tune in, um, you know, to the games, people watch that game. It's going to, they're going to have the, the um, you know, the Canada, Canada West selects are going to play against the Seattle Seawolves. And I mean, ultimately too, like, um, you know, Patty mentioned the streaming a lot and we kind of talked about that too. And I, I think that, you know, if you haven't seen a lot of these games, you're kind of interested in, you know, and watching them, they're still all up on YouTube. Right. So it's like, I would, uh, yeah, so definitely, you know, go check those out and, um, yeah, like it'll, you know, enjoy, uh, enjoy some of the West coast rugby, enjoy some of the coastal cup games, and uh, you know, hopefully, going into next year, they uh, they continue to uh, to grow, you know, grow the the brand of the Coastal Cup, grow the brand of the Vancouver Wave. All right. Well, we're going to take it from BC back to Ontario because we've got some news from the Toronto Arrows coming forth. Um, both have coaching news and player news, but we'll start with the coaching news, and that is that Francois Wattier, uh, former head coach of the Canada's uh, women's team, as well as the interim coach for the men's team, will be joining the Arrows as a coaching consultant from January 2nd, 2022, because as we all know, uh, New Year's Day can be pretty hard, especially if you're hungover. So always start your new job the day afterwards. Um, But yeah, he has an impressive resume. He brought um, the women's team to the 2014 Rugby World Cup final, the furthest uh, Canada's ever gotten in the tournament. Um, as the interim coach for the men's team, he guided them to joint second in the 2016 America's Rugby Championship. Again, the highest they've ever finished in that competition as well. And this won't be uh, Rattier's first um, instance with the Arrows. He was actually part of the coaching staff during the rugby rally that was held in October. Um, Jamie McKenzie has gone on social media and said that this is a great addition with the team. And, you know, he was speaking when we had him um, on our 100th episode about um, the importance of, like, the coaching staff as well. So, yeah, this seems to be, like, another great addition to the Arrows uh, coaching staff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, he uh, he brings that experience from, as you said, kind of leading the uh, the women's national team to a, a World Cup final appearance. And, you know, he's had great success at that level and as well as, you know, um, what he's currently doing in the, the province of Quebec too, right? So there's a lot of, um, you know, Radier is obviously doing a lot of great work. He's a very, like, highly sought-after coach. And, you know, it's it's not surprising that the Toronto Arrows would want a coach of his caliber to, you know, be part of their staff and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, lend, lending his thoughts and uh, his ideas um on how the game of rugby should be played to uh, to the Toronto Arrows, and um, 
you know, I think ultimately, you know, you look back on some of the changes that have been made and, you know, I, I think some of the changes that have been made, some of the new faces that faces that have been brought into the Toronto Arrows coaching staff. And, you know, it's uh it's a great staff all around it. I mean, Radier just, you know, obviously headed by Pete Smith now, but um, Radier just kind of adds to it, right? You got some of the, uh, the best coaches in Canada are now, uh, you know, seem to be finding their way to the, uh, the Toronto Arrows. Well, speaking of people who impressed during the rugby rally, we also need to talk about the uh, re-signings and new signing for the Toronto Arrows in terms of the player department. Um, so unfortunately, Derek, you weren't there to witness it live, but uh, one of the re-signings, Mitch Richardson, had an absolutely stellar performance at the rugby rally. Um, this will be his fourth campaign with the Arrows. He's already made 14 appearances, six of which are starts. And, you know, he's um, come through the Pacific Pride, um, graduate of the Ontario Blues, the McMasters. Um, speaking of Pacific Pride, I'm, I'm using a lot of uh, segues here from previous things I've said. <laughs> uh, Siaki Vikilani will also be back this time for his second season after his first season was so impressive, he uh, joined the uh, Canadian squad during the summer. So, you know, he's had a very impressive uh, debut season. And... You know, it was uh, curtailed by injury. He only made uh, two appearances and one start for the club. So he's hoping that he's uh, fighting fit for the 2022 season. Um, but someone who was called up for the Arrows for the rugby rally um, is Andrew Norton. So Andrew Norton is a South African-born Spanish player. He's had three caps for Los Leones. Um in 2019, including a victory over Russia in the Rugby Europe Championship. Um, he's had uh, six years of playing in Spain's Division de Honor. And like I said, he's uh, from South Africa. He went through the Sharks Academy system. He's played for uh, the under 19s and under 21s Super Rugby Clubs junior teams. Um, he's played for the University of Cape Town and the Elkie Tigers in the Varsity Cup. Um, he moved to Toronto in 2021 and has actually been playing uh, grassroots rugby with Barmy Beach. That's who was uh, picked up on uh, the Arrows radar and what eventually got him a, on the rugby rally roster uh, for 2021. And clearly has impressed so well that he's now a full member of the squad. So Norton, half and centre, Mitch Richardson at centre and Siaki Vikilani at number eight. So the Arrows have now signed 29 players for next season. They just need that one more player and they can do 15 on 15. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they're probably going to have to sign a few more than just 30. Um, uh, yeah, man, I like the signings and stuff. I think uh, Richardson, I've always been a, I've been a big fan of Mitch Richardson. I know, uh, you know, it, it's, it's tough sometimes when, uh, you know, you're playing on the same team as, uh, you know, in the past seasons, you know, Spencer Jones, Ben Lesage. Um, you know, previous seasons too, you had like Dan Moore in the mix at center as well, with just Septuagint. The, the arrows are deep at center, man. Um, they and you know, which is a crazy thing to say when they have traded, you know, the guy that was the all star center. Um, but yeah, you know, you have Rich like the Richardson, Tafuga Jones. Now you have Norton too, that can also play fly or can also play center and he can play fly half. So, which is always a nice little bit of versatility, right? So now you got, 
So not only are you like super deep at center here with some of these signings, right? So I kind of just listed off the guys that can play center on the team, but then you got Will Kelly, Sam Malcolm, and Andrew Norton that can all play fly half. Um, right. And uh, I think, you know, so, so it is kind of exciting. Some building some depth in the, in the backs and, you know, I think kind of like looking at the squad right now, it's, you know, there's still, obviously we're still waiting on a few, on a handful of names to be announced and stuff, but it's, it's kind of looking like right now you need uh, probably maybe you need a hooker and uh, you definitely need some, some more uh, like, you know, wingers and fullbacks to probably be signed. Um, so um, be interesting to see uh, like, you know, what any of the other names that start to come out are going to be, but I mean, ultimately kind of looking like you're building up to being a pretty solid squad. And then, you know, e- even with a f- couple like obviously, you know, a couple big names have departed, but also, you know, a couple uh, big names are also coming in, right? And, uh, you know, Norton too. And it's like, it's it's always good to add more cap to guys, right? And it's, you know, playing for Spain and stuff. Like that's, that's a good team. And, uh, you know, so Andrew Norton kind of coming in, hopefully he'll be able to bring uh, bring a little something to, uh, to the Toronto Arrows. Uh, as you kind of mentioned, went through like the Sharks Academy and stuff in South Africa. Um, I wonder if um, he went to the best rugby high school in the world, like uh, Christian and uh, Patty both claimed that they did in our uh, you know previous segment there. But um, uh, but either way, uh, seems like a great player. So you know, Arrow's got a little a little bit of back depth, and obviously you know Vicky Lani, uh, Vicky Lani, the back row stacked, man. The back row's crazy good. So, um, you know, excited to see what Vicky can do. And uh, I guess what r- really will hopefully be his first healthy pro season because, uh, you know, he did miss quite a bit of time last year. And um, so hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully all healed up and uh, be able to hit the ground running next season. You know, we obviously want to see uh, all our players in the shape and making sure that they're all good coming the 2022 season. Uh, now, this bit of news uh, just came out today, and it's actually a little bit of congratulations because recent signing and second round draft pick for the Arrows, Bryce Warden, as part of 278 UBC Thunderbirds athletes, has achieved all Canadian status, you know, one of the highest status of student athlete. So, Bryce, congratulations on being an all Canadian. You know, maybe uh, work it into like your nickname. I'm, I'm sure that all your uh, teammates will be giving you a lot of stick for it as well. Okay, now there's been a lot of other signing news going on in MLR. And we're going to start off with LA, where interestingly, I think this was a public secret in that it was announced by lots of other media, but now the Guiltinis have officially made it known that Will Chambers of the Sharks in NRL in Australia will be joining LA and Will Chambers plays at center in Union. So it's nice that, um, you know, Ben Lesage has an understudy that can, you know, fill in whenever he's not feeling well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I saw, you know, obviously like a lot of people kind of online, um, you know, because I don't think like L.A. really did not did not help um, curb this discussion um, because they they directly mentioned 
you know, that he could be a, you know, a replacement for the departing Adam Ashley Cooper, who was retired and now part of their coaching staff, um, which to me on all I thought was hilarious because it's the exact same sentence that they I think they copy and pasted that paragraph from the Ben Lesage article as well. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately you kind of look at that and it's LA's, LA's backline is, is LA's backline stacked. Like I've, I, I, I don't know. Like I've seen like, you know, some people are kind of starting to put like their predictions and stuff up on like Reddit and things. And I'm like, I see that, you know, they have, um, you know, some people on like some of the prediction threads and stuff aren't putting LA as like number one in the West. And I'm like, how, um, but you know, like, yeah, you're the champs until you lose. Right. And it's like, they seem like, even though they're losing some guys, um, they're, they're gaining quite a bit. Right. So I think, but ultimately I think it seemed like there was some concern for, uh, like Ben Lesage's spot on the team. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be too worried about it, to be honest. Like, I don't think I, I want to be worried about it at all. Um, Ben Lesage literally, got an award or maybe not an award an honor for being named the best outside center in major league rugby last year like he's he's the first team all-star at outside center which is nuts because la also has the guy that was first team all-star at in uh at inside center um so in all the reason why they don't have the first choice or second choice for outside center is because adam ashley cooper has retired yeah that's true yeah so la centers uh, much like Toronto, LA centers are pretty good. Um, but yeah, their backline is going to be nuts. But I think like ultimately, you know, like competition is a good thing too, right? Like we, we heard, you know, we just, we just heard, uh, you know, Christian was talking about, um, you know, how bringing in like foreign players can help like raise the level of talent and help push the pace um, at the club level and at that, you know, the Vancouver Wave Coastal Cup level, right? And it's, it's the same thing here. Like, if you know what I mean, like, it's the same thing here. Like, if you don't, th- if you don't think Ben Lesage is going to become a better rugby player because he has to compete against like Will Chambers and Billy Meeks for playing time, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, he's going to be better because he has his level of competition just on his team um, is, is going to be, is going to be incredibly great. And, you know, his, and, like LA is not going to, I don't think LA is going to make that trade too, if they don't intend on using Ben Lesage. And also like we, we've heard on our own podcast, how much DTH loves playing with Ben Lesage and how highly DTH thinks about him. Right. And that's obviously, you know, he's a big part of that team down there too. Um, I don't think competition is necessarily a bad thing. Right. So, you know, if, um, so like, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out for sure. Um, but also like the other thing is too, is like, even in the press release, right. It's like, they go, uh, like Will Chambers coming over from league. Right. So like, that's going to be an adjustment for him. Right. Cause he is coming over cross code. And I mean, even if he has played union before, you know, it's, he's been in the NRL for, you know, the past what decade or so. Right. It's like, that's going to be an adjustment coming to the, the other code. And secondly too, like, as the press release says, like he can play wing. Right. So it's like, if you're LA, it's like, yeah, maybe he can compete there, but maybe he competes at wing and, you know, maybe who's, who's LA's fly half. Has LA announced the fly half for this year yet? Are we still thinking Cardi? Because Giddow's obviously retired. I think it'll be Cardi, but maybe they'll, uh, 
yeah, pull a right. wild card and, and, and Goddard's coming back too, right? To my knowledge, yes. Yeah. All right. Well, well, it's like so. Like, if you're LA right now, it's like you could be like looking at a backline that's like Goddard, Cardi, um, Meeks, Lesage, DTH, Chambers, and then uh, whoever their fullback is. But like, um, who is their fullback right now? Actually, do they have a fullback sign? Well, they haven't. Uh, I don't think they've announced their entire squad yet. So, okay, right. So it's like kind of based on potentially what we know, right? Like you kind of look at those names as like that's a very formidable backline, right? So maybe maybe that's LA's play too. Maybe you put Chambers on the wing, right? And you know, obviously they had some great wingers in LA last year with DTH Ryberg, James, right? So it's like the wing was a tough spot to uh, get playing time too well in LA, right? So I mean. They're obviously looking to uh, defend that title. So um, plenty of big names join in LA and, you know, that doesn't even we're like, you know, we've seen all the signings all year long, right. Even bringing like DTA or uh, sorry, uh, justice Sears Duru into the fold too. Right. So LA looks like they're going to be a pretty uh, formidable team, but um, you know, I, I don't think I would be concerned about Ben Lesage's playing time, man. Like he's, he already, he's already proven that he's the bet one of the, He's already proven that he's, you know, the best outside center of major league rugby and has like the actual, the actual honor to claim it. So, I mean, even from that right now, I would be, if you're a handicap in LA's depth chart, I'm still probably putting Ben Lesage in that spot. Cause you know, you traded for the all-star center at that position. Right. So it's like, you gotta, you gotta do that. That's his until somebody takes it away from him. So we'll see how it goes though. We will see. Now, uh, so there's been some movement going on in New York because it was announced that Sam Windsor uh, was leaving Houston. He posted this on social media about a month or two ago. It has now been announced by Rugby New York that it'll be Sam Windsor moving to the Big Apple and leaving the Sabercats for the Roosters, which I think is a huge signing for New York. And this will be Windsor's fifth season in Major League Rugby. Um, keeping it out east, um, Chance Wengluski is also joining New York from Atlanta. So I know that Chance Wengluski was a big part of um, that Atlanta forward pack, but now he'll be uh, playing with New York this time. So dressing in the blue and orange. Yeah, a couple of really big signings for um, Rugby New York. And I'm still getting used to not saying United every time I mention this team's name. Um, obviously, Sam Windsor, you know, he's been one of uh, one of the premier fly halves in the league um, over, you know, the course of the the early kind of days of the season. Kind of, um, you know, it, it's sometimes it's tough to judge, you know, because he's he was clearly the best player on some really bad Houston teams. And, you know, coming to New York, that was obviously they were a playoff team last year. And, uh, you know, Dan's Hall, that, you know, Dan Holland's head is kind of, you know, is on his way out. And, you know, Windsor is a big pickup to kind of fill that, fill that fly half role. And obviously, you know, he's going to be able to combine with Andy Ellis. So it's a pretty good halfback pairing in, uh, in New York. Uh, as you know, it's uh, one of those things, man, it's this off season, it's kind of really looking like an off chance when Gluski joining as well. It's really looking like a lot of like, you know, the playoff teams, like the teams that were really good last year, just kind of keep adding guys and are kind of getting better. So, um, you know, those teams that are 
going to be, I know the playoffs slightly expanding this year, going to be three, three teams in each division that make the playoffs, but you know, it'll, it'll be fun to, uh, it'll be fun to see how it ends up, ends up playing out, but it really looks like, you know, those teams that got kind of close to the title or even LA themselves, as I just mentioned, are uh, kind of really gunning to, uh, to do it again and are definitely improving as the, uh, the year goes on. Well, speaking of New York, we've, speaking of New York, we've had players joining them, and now this player that's leaving them, Rob Iremescu, is leaving New York, but will be joining Old Glory DC. And another player that will be joining him there is William Talalena from the Southland Stags in New Zealand. Over in Houston, we have the addition of Kian Meaden from Sharks. Now, this is not the same Sharks as Will Chambers. This is the Sharks from South Africa. And over in San Diego, we got um, some signing news and some other news as well. Benjamin Grant will join San Diego from the Queensland Reds in Australia. And announced today on Tuesday, the 14th of December, uh, San Diego Legion will be playing their 2022 season from San Diego State University Sports Deck. Now, this is a facility that's mainly used for San Diego State's uh, soccer teams. Um, and the interesting thing of why it's called the Sports Deck is because it's held above a two-story parking lot. So you never have to worry about parking because it's obviously under the stadium. <laughs> um, well, that's probably, that's probably good, man. It's uh, probably quick quick access from the field to the uh, to the parking lot for the fans too, right? Like yeah, that should be absolutely. Well, um, there's there's some stadiums in the world, man, where leaving the stadium is a pain, like it's annoying. So I mean, that sounds like it's quite convenient. Yeah, so interesting thing about it is also that the capacity is going to be reduced from what fans expect at Torero Stadium is that instead of 6,000, it's now down to 3,000. Um, and that may just be because of like structural limits. There's um, seating for 1,500. So I think what, um, uh, what the Legion will be doing is bringing in uh, bleachers just to fill out seating. Um, it is a field with a track surrounded by it. So maybe there'll be seating on the track as well whilst games are going on, especially at the start of the season where it shouldn't hopefully be interfering with uh, the athletics. Um, and this must be a huge parking garage. Well, yeah, if you can have a rugby field oh, yeah. on top of it, then it's going to be a rugby field and a track on top of it with stand. Are the stands on top? I believe so. It's um, it's kind of hard I to mean, tell. I mean, good good use of space, I guess, for the uh, San Diego State University. But there does appear also to be some absolutely like great views of um, the local area, which I'm assuming is the rest of the university campus as well yeah. uh, from stadium. Does it beat? I haven't looked at a picture yet. Does it beat Utah though? There are mountains, so. You're hesitating they're not, they're not as close like, and they're not as picturesque from yeah. a couple of the images I've seen. So, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to see. And also if the camera's pointed the other direction, then we just see, you know, a parking lot behind the parking lot. <laughs> no, it's the parking you know, lot maybe it's not that great. Um, but, you know, as especially because um, San Diego last year, you know, they were going to Vegas, then they were going to Dignity Health, then going to Chula Vista and only playing two games at Torero Stadium to know where they're going to be 
for the duration of yeah, the 2022 nice. season. It's got to be a massive weight off the supporters. Three minds. Three thousand is that? Is that too small? Well, it's half the because it's half the limit, or sorry, it's half the capacity of Torero Stadium. Hmm. So then again, this is what um, this is only what's available on the San Diego um, yeah. website. Uh, no, so sorry, on the State University website. So yeah. you can only get so much information. Obviously, um, San Diego though, San Diego probably sells out a three thousand seat stadium though. Like, yeah, and that sells, sells out three thousand just for home supporters. So it may be a case of the Legion even having more seating as a result. Yeah. Obviously, that is dependent on what the building is capable of holding. But there's obviously the space for it because there's the uh, running track around it. But you know, will this will all be answered <laughs> come uh, February of next year? And we'll hopefully get to see like the great views of the California mountains behind and, you know, the campus as well. And, you know, and like I said, it's just a weight off everyone's minds. So oh. uh, that seems to be it for the news. If you are looking to watch some rugby this weekend, we've got some good news. Um, not about the cost, but uh, about where you can watch <laughs> it is the uh, Champions and Challenge Cup. Um, is viewable on epcr.tv. Yeah. You get round packages, so those are games that you'll uh-huh. be able to see for the entire weekend as well. So yeah, it's a uh, it's like twenty pounds a round, or like eight dollars a game, which seems exce- is that excessive? Like, well, I'm trying to. Compared to like, so you basically you got to watch three games to justify the price of the entire round. And is that that's for the Challenge and Champions Cup as well? Yeah, but either way, you still have to watch three games to justify based on like how much they're charging per individual game. But the good thing is, there's games on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, so you can space it out. Maybe you can catch two games a day over mm-hmm. the. the for each day of the weekend, then you watch six, and then you've basically yeah, you know, that's, that's gonna add up as the competition goes on, though. But well, that's the thing. So, this week will be round two, and then there'll be a pause as we return to the Premiership and URC. That will be on Sportsnet, and coming up will be the festive derby. So, that'll be the Welsh teams against each other, Irish teams against each other, and obviously in the Premiership, it'll be as local a team as you can get. Uh, playing one another either around uh, Christmas and Boxing Day, maybe Christmas Eve as well. Mm-hmm. So, Stu, I gotta—I know this isn't our uh, our former our former co-host Dan. He always had this this tradition of starting the podcast without talking about rugby. Um, I'm gonna kind of switch switch it up a little bit on you because I know you're a really big F1 fan. So, as somebody that is not really an F1 fan. What the hell happened on? Was it Sunday? What happened? Yep. What happened on Sunday? I do not understand this crazy, this this controversy that has that has occurred. Um, Max Verstappen obviously is the champ. Um, I cannot wait till Netflix, um, because this this is gonna be this is probably gonna be amazing on Netflix, the Drive to Survive series. But as a F one fan that really only watches Drive to Survive. Which because it's amazing, but 
what like what actually what what the hell happened i don't like why is everyone so mad at the fia right now well the good thing derek is that i've had other rugby friends of mine ask for this in rugby terms so i'm gonna try rugby terminology let's go all right okay so after mercedes and lewis hamilton led all match red bull got their subs on whilst mercedes didn't the refs then made an on-field decision before the TMO overruled them, and they changed the decision on the fly. On the final lap, Max Verstappen kicked a drop goal to win the race and the championship with it. Okay. So you said the ref, so the refs changed the decision. Because obviously, obviously your, uh, your subs reference, I'm assuming, is, is referring to the tires. That is I did, I did see something about, like, Max had fresh, a fresh yes. set of wheels. So. But like I just don't, yeah. So like Mercedes made the so Nicholas Latifi, a Canadian, um, crashed. Ooh, Canadian. All right, Canadian shoutouts on this podcast. We're all about that. Unless he did something bad, and then so he got his tires dirty. He didn't have the traction. He spun. He crashed into the wall. There's a lot of debris on the track. That meant the safety car had to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the circumstances of the race, Mac, uh, Lewis and Max are on the same points. Which meant that Lewis would have to beat Max in order to win the championship. So it was basically like um, last race, winner takes all kind of scenario. Um, Lewis was leading, and Mercedes said, "If you um, pit now for fresh tires, you will lose track position. Okay. And because you'll be behind the safety car, there's no guarantee that the race. Because if the race finishes under safety car." then whoever's first will win the race. Right. So that was their logic. Max, being second, realized, I've got nothing to lose. So Red Bull decided to pit him, put him on the soft tires, fresh tires, and then they were out under the safety car. So Max was able to pit, and therefore he could stay in second. And if the race finished, he would lose the championship. So so in his mind, just go for it. So in Formula One, the rule is normally that any car that is lapped under the whilst under the safety car can unlap themselves. So then everyone's in the correct order. So uh, Lewis will be first, Max will be second, uh, whoever's third is third, fourth, and then in that order. Yeah. Because as the race goes on, um, certain cars are faster than other and just overtake other cars. Yeah. Um, and they said, so it's either you unlap yourself or you're not allowed at all, which is, and because of the way that the cars were lined up and because Max had pitted, even though he was second in the race, there were four or five cars ahead of him between Lewis and Max. Okay. I'm following. That, so that was what the, it was announced originally. And then the race director, Michael Massey, said those cars between Lewis and Max, we're going to allow them to go ahead of the safety car and unlap themselves. And so the problem with this is that all the cars behind Max that were lapped were not allowed to unlap themselves. Oh, so they were just like... This is going to be really. They were just like, this is going to be really fun. Get these, uh, get these guys that have no no impact on this race out of the way, please. Yeah. 
essentially. And then as that was announced, because normally what would happen is you get one extra lap with the safety car to unlap yourself. So you're not immediately overtaking people and causing or getting in anyone's way. Yeah. However, um, it was then announced that after those five cars had gone past the safety car, the safety car would be coming in that lap, which meant that Lewis and Max were right next to each other. Oh, so Max was able to make up like the ground during like the caution or whatever. Exactly. And yeah. this also meant that Max was on fresher tires. Lewis was on multiple laps, old tires, worn tires that would have, that would get him to the end, but aren't the same as fresh tires. So as soon as it comes to the first overtaking opportunity, Max takes the inside line, mm. gets ahead. To be fair, Lewis did put up a bit of a fight, but it was one of those, you know, time ran out kind of scenarios. And Max goes around a few corners and becomes um, Netherlands' first ever Formula One world champion. So, so like, how mad should I be about this? Because, like, does everyone like? Because I've always kind of heard that, like, every like Lewis Hamilton is kind of like, like the Tom Brady is kind of the analogy that I've he kind of he is. I want this to go on record now. Lewis Hamilton will go down as the greatest Formula One driver of all time. He's had more wins. He's had more podiums. He's had more um, pole positions. He has won in every single season that he's competed in in Formula One. No other driver has that um, honor bestowed for them. And I am fairly certain that come the end of the 2022 season, he will be an eight-time world champion and by every metric will go down as the greatest. But I also feel that what Max Verstappen has done and what Red Bull have done also earns recognition as well. So how annoyed should you be as a Red Bull fan? Fairly okay with it. As a Formula One fan, I'd be pretty miffed. And as a Mercedes or Lewis Hamilton fan, you know what? I'm pretty sure you're still angry. So I'm going to just say, yeah, I feel for you, man. I feel yeah, for you. Deserved anger. Deserved anger. It is fully deserved anger. What What's the rugby analogy for like who like Mercedes is, though? Like what, te- what team lines up with Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton? So Mercedes are one of the most successful teams of all time. Definitely the most successful in the current era of cars. So I would probably put them as like the New Zealand or South Africa of Formula One teams. Oh, so I like those teams. So I should be angry. Is that what you're saying? Oh, well, then I'm angry. God damn it, Max Verstappen. That call by the FAA was terrible. You don't deserve to win. I come on. What? I don't know. It's not his. It's not his decision that <laughs> they decided to bring the safety car in. Yeah, but I still hate him all the same. So plus, I, I I'm not even. I can't even drink Red Bull. So you know. Well, there you have it. Uh, Dutch and Belgian fans. Derek Brissett hates Max Verstappen. Make sure you send all hate mail to him. But if you want to send a complimentary mail of uh, how good a job we're doing or anything we could improve on, such as. Derek learning to be able to drink uh, Red Bull, you can email us at Podcast at gmail.com. And if you want to interact with us on social media, we're on, uh, you know, all the platforms. We're working on the TikTok, I will admit. Uh, <laughs> Facebook, 
Twitter, Instagram, at LaRouge Rugby. And if you'd like to hear more of our episodes, you can listen on Spotify, Apple Music, and on Anchor FM. Um, Derek, if people want to find you over the holiday season on social media for all your updates, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, at Brissette the Jet across all social media platforms. And um, yeah, like it's, uh, you know, it, I hope uh, hope everybody has like, you know, a safe and happy holiday season. Um, and, you know, it's uh, it's been another absolutely wild year. And, uh, you know, I, I've kind of realized something too. Like we had, so me and Dan, started this podcast like halfway probably actually closer to like three quarters of the way through the 2019 MLR season and then obviously you know in 2020 like the world went to hell and uh every you know sports were canceled across the board and we didn't really have an MLR season so you know, it kind of feels like like this year, 2021, is like kind of like the first full LaRouge rugby year that we've had to do. We got a full MLR season. We got a, you know, maybe not quite as full as it would normally be, but I'm going to still call it full of full, like, you know, test window in the summer, full test window in the fall, um, you know, a whole bunch of competitions in between. We've talked about the university rugby, we talked about the Coastal Cup um as we've just spent the past hour really doing as well and you know so it's uh it's been kind of fun we got like i guess this sort of we just got like i guess the first real full year under our belts here Stu. so uh i don't know how like how you feeling about it going uh looking forward you excited for next year see uh keep kind of growing here yeah i mean i've had some great times with la rouge rugby you know as you said like our first full year you know, maybe the results didn't go the way we'd uh, like, but uh, here's hoping that next year we can do a full season. Yeah. Talking about how uh, Toronto lift the shield <laughs> and uh, Canada getting a few more wins on their con. Um, I'd also like to say that if you want to find me on social media, I'm mainly <laughs> on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is Hardman, spelled H4RDMAN. And if you're watching this on YouTube, well, it should be just below me right there um as you can tell this will be our final episode for the 2021 uh season as a season year um you know unless big news comes through and considering our upload schedule and our recording schedule that'll be tomorrow so (laughs) But if that doesn't happen, we want to wish you a very happy holidays, whatever you celebrate. And we look forward to you joining us again next year in 2022.